First Peter chapter two. We're continuing our ser series uh, in the epistle of Peter to the church. Uh, we're doing this in conjunction with our friends at Valley Church. It's so great to have them here with us today and celebrating this moment. And uh, Pastor Quentin, a good friend of mine, is preaching through this series. We've been working together and and uh, and and just kind of uh, collaborating on this series. And so uh, it's been fun to have some ideas shared around and kicked around as as I prepare and preach on this passage. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 12. So if you have your Bible or your smartphone or your tablet or whatever it takes to get your eyes on the Word of God, that would be fantastic. I apologize for my voice again. I've been fighting this cold for eight weeks now, and my wife keeps telling me that I need to go back to the doctor, but I'm kind of stubborn that way. So um, you'll have to put up with my voice cracking once in a while. Well, as we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, I want you to imagine, if you would with me, the following scene. Ima imagine a woman in her 20s who has just finished her undergraduate degree in pre-med. And imagine, if you would, she's just returned from the mailbox, and she's sitting at her desk, and on her desk in front of her, underneath a stack, or on top of a stack of bills, is a letter from the medical school that she wants to attend. She's nervous because as she looks at this letter unopened in front of her, she realizes that this may be her last opportunity. You see, in the garbage on the floor next to her is a pile of opened letters of rejection. All of them said, we regret to inform you. They said things like, that all our spots have been filled or that you don't meet our academic criteria or we regret to inform you, you haven't been selected. They were all letters of rejection. And now she holds this letter in her hand wondering if this will be her last opportunity and she's afraid to open it because she's afraid to experience the same pain that she's experienced. If it's another rejection, is her dream dead? Does she have no value or potential? Is this the end? Has she been rejected? This same scene has played out on every playground across America. As every kid knows that moment when the kickball team is being chosen. I had the moment where I sat there and I just thought, please God, don't let me be the last one chosen. Don't let me be that kid. Please don't make them argue. Please don't let them argue over who has to take me. Or we would look at the kid who that happened to and wonder, what does it feel like to feel that kind of rejection when the same three kids are picked last every time? You see, the sting of rejection is real. It is real. And maybe you can relate to this idea. Maybe you can relate to the sting of rejection in your life. Maybe you were rejected by a job or an opportunity. Maybe you've been rejected by peers or friends or neighbors or relatives Maybe you've lost relationships. Maybe you find yourself asking the simple question, where, where do I belong? Maybe you're feeling marginalized by your, the culture around us. Maybe as a Christian, you are feeling increasingly rejected by the world around us. Maybe you just wonder if you have any value to anyone. As strangers in a strange land, this is what Peter's audience felt on a regular basis. These were most likely Gentiles, non-Jews, who had placed their faith in Jesus. 
or they were Gentiles who had become Jews and then placed their faith in Jesus. Either way, they felt the sting of rejection. The Jews were persecuting them. The Gentiles were persecuting him. Their emperor, their king, their president, if you were, was Nero, one of the worst tyrants in the history of the Christian faith. And this was the very difficult world in which they lived. You know what? Jesus understood their rejection. And Peter wants them to know that. He wants them to know that their Savior Jesus understood what it was like to be rejected. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter tells these people who are feeling a keen sense of rejection. He tells them, As you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You see, Jesus came as the sent one from God the Father. He was rejected by the very people who were supposed to be God's chosen one. And this, in, sense, in essence, is the gospel. The very thing we just celebrated in communion together, that, that, that Jesus, God himself, became one of us and was rejected by the very people God had chosen. He was rejected by his Jewish people. Utter and total rejection. But he found acceptance in the Heavenly Father. He found acceptance. Jesus, God the Son, found acceptance in God the Father. And that's what the text says. Rejected by men, but chosen by God the Father and precious to him. Jesus found acceptance there. Can I just do that? That'll be easier. Thanks. In the midst of your rejection, if you can relate to this, you need to know today that just like Jesus, you have been accepted by the one who is greater than you can ever imagine. And because he has accepted you, you have a greater privilege. You have a greater sense of belonging, a greater power than you could ever imagine. Because you are accepted by God in Jesus. There are three aspects of your acceptance that I want you to, to think through today. If you have a bulletin, you can follow along there. The first aspect of your acceptance by God is that you are a temple. You are a temple. It's such a strange image. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 4 through 8. We get the imagery in here of the church being the temple of the living God. We might think that this sounds a little strange to us. Like, what does it mean to be a temple? Uh, you kind of think of maybe a, a, a teenage boy worshiping some girl he just met and calling her body a temple or something weird like that. The temple imagery is hard for us to grasp in our Western culture. And, but it sounded a little weird to Peter's audience as well. A temple was a thing. It wasn't alive. A temple was in Jerusalem, and it was built with stones that were very much not alive. These stones were dead stones, so to speak. Now he's going to refer to Jesus as the cornerstone of the temple and a living stone. In fact, in verse 6, he refers to Jesus as the living cornerstone. Start in verse 5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. 
for scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. The cornerstone, of course, that we want to talk about is the first and most important stone in any building. Now, we don't really build with stones anymore, and so it's hard for us to get a, a handle on this, but the cornerstone is the first and cornerstone of any building, and it's important that the cornerstone be true and right so that the rest of the building is built also straight and true and right. Otherwise, if the cornerstone was wrong, everything would be off. So the cornerstone, the first stone in the corner, set the parameters for the entire building. We don't have stones today, but we do have the importance of foundations. Uh, when a foundation is poured, after the foundation of a home is poured, then a carpenter's job is to lay the first pieces of wood that will, in essence, determine if the house is straight and has actual right angles to everything. My father-in-law, who is a very handy guy, he's been in construction for years. Recently, he helped me put in new cabinets. We tore out all the old cabinets in our kitchen, and we put in new ones. And since I didn't really know what I was doing, I begged him for help, and he came and helped me. One thing that happened about every 30 minutes is my father-in-law could complain about the carpenters who built my house. Because as we were putting the cabinets in, he'd say, are you kidding me? I have to shim this again, or I have to move this again? These guys didn't know what they were doing. They built a house that's crooked. It was very frustrating. The foundation of a house is important. And Jesus is our foundation. He is our cornerstone. He is a new living temple. And you and I, in, in essence then, the text says, we are living stones built on our living stone. See, the role of the temple and the role of the priest is something that's very hard for us as Americans to understand. We don't walk around having royal priests or royalty of any kind. We don't really grasp this or understand it. But to people in the first century, they very much understood it. To be a priest, you had to be in a genetic line of priests. To be a ruler or royalty in any way, you had to be in a genetic line. There is no way that these Christians should possibly have been considered royalty or priests in any way. But because you are accepted by God, look at verse 5 again. Because you are accepted by God, you are living stones, you are built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. One of the amazing things that has happened in the history of the church is the Protestant Reformation. Back in the 1500s, uh, a guy by the name of Martin Luther and other reformers, Calvin Zwingli, other key reformers in Europe, begin to say, there are some things wrong with the church and we want to reform this. One of the ideas that they grasped onto and that we cling to today was a scriptural idea that every believer can be a priest. You don't need a priest to go to and be a priest for you. You can be a priest underneath your high priest, Jesus. In fact, Jesus, our high priest, created access for us in Christ to go directly into the presence of the Father. The, new, the reformers talked about this in terms of the priesthood of all believers. And, Pete, and they're just echoing off the words of Peter. You're a royal priesthood. He's saying to them, you are a priest. 
And he's saying it to you and me. Did you know you're a priest? If you're in Christ, you're a priest. It sounds weird, but you can offer spiritual sacrifices. Everything you do can be a spiritual sacrifice to God. In your home, at your work, when you're playing softball, you can offer spiritual sacrifices to God. And this, of course, reminds Peter, as he talks about this, that we weren't just randomly selected as priests, but we were chosen. Look at the scripture, verses 6 through 8. Peter starts thinking, he knows the Old Testament well, and he goes, oh, that reminds me of this Old Testament verse. Let me quote it for you. Look what he says. In scripture it says, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, as he talks about Jesus. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, that's you and me, The stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected became the capstone, and the stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. We were chosen by God to be his people. Everything that you do as a chosen royal priest can be a spiritual sacrifice to God. I was talking to a a young mother this week, and this young mom was going crazy because she has three little ones at home, none of who are in school yet. And I think this mom was pulling out her hair because she feels like all she does is change diapers and answer to baby screams. And she wonders, what is my purpose in life? And I had a chance to say to her, this sacrifice... This is an acceptable sacrifice to God. Your investment into these three little children, while it might not feel meaningful, is is indeed a spiritual sacrifice that is honoring and pleasing to God. And when I say that, it might not make sense to anyone else, but it did to that mom. You know, Jesus, in fact, didn't make sense to anyone else, really. But when they rejected Jesus, he was accepted by the Heavenly Father as a cornerstone, the capstone. And you and I are living stones, accepted by God. And we're a temple in the living stones. The second thing you need to understand today about the idea that you have been accepted by God, the text says you also need to know that you belong to a people. You belong to a people. We just celebrated this in communion today, that because of the blood of Jesus, we're a family. Peter is going to stress that in our text today. You belong to a people. Have you ever gone to a gathering where you know no one? For some of you, you're here today, and that's you. You know no one around here. You know no one. And you've experienced that. We've all experienced it. I hate it. My wife sometimes will drag me to something where I know no one. And I just hate it. Because I'm like, where's my role? Where's my place? Where do I belong? I was interesting. I was talking to Bob Stouffer this week. If you know Bob, he was one of our founding elders. Bob just got relocated to South Carolina. And we were so sad to see Bob and Cheryl uh, go to South Carolina. But he's doing a great work there for a, a local Christian school there in South Carolina. But I was talking to Bob. Bob and Cheryl had lived in Des Moines for 25 years or more. 
They knew a lot of people. In fact, whenever I would go somewhere with Bob, Bob would always know someone. He would always run into someone he knew. And I always felt like I knew, I know no one compared to Bob. He knew every, everywhere he went in the city of Des Moines, he knew somebody. And so I was talking to Bob and I said, how's it going? And he said, oh, the, the job's great. He said, this is fantastic. I'm doing what God called me to do. Uh, in many sense, he's like, you know, we sent Bob to South Carolina to do the work God had for him. He said, but the hardest thing is I don't know anyone. How strange would that be for Bob to not know anyone? And it's a struggle. We talked about a struggle of belonging. You see, Peter's audience is experiencing something very similar to that. His audience, they're very much alone. But in Christ, they are not alone. They belong to a people. There are three phrases here in the text that Peter reminds us. This is how you belong. You're accepted by God and you belong. First of all, he says in the text, you are a chosen people. Verse 9, you are a chosen people. Now you need to understand, first of all, that if you go all the way back to in the, in the Jewish nation to their founding father, Abraham, for the Jewish people, there is a pride and a history of being genetically linked. And Abraham was indeed chosen by God. Abraham was chosen and picked out by God. So the Jewish people talked about themselves as chosen people. And what Peter here is jumping on, he's playing off that. He says, you as Christians are God's chosen people. You have an identity. There's purpose. Paul talks about this in language where he talks about being grafted into a vine. He says, you have been grafted in as God's holy people. And just as the Jewish people had a deep-rooted identity in their race, now any believer in Jesus has the same sense of belonging. There's a second word he uses here to describe how they belong to a people. Look at verses 9. He says, you're a chosen people, and secondly, you're a royal priesthood. Huh, thanks, Pete. You are a royal priesthood. And you have a job. We already hit on what it means to be a priest, but you have a job to declare the praises. We have a job in our family. We're to declare the praises. What, what Peter is talking about very clearly here is not merely singing, although that's part of it, and not merely worship in the way we think about worship, but a declaration through our lives of the gospel of God to the world around us. We have a job. The third phrase here then, is simply this. You are a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That is what you are. You and I must view ourselves in terms that are countercultural. Did you know that I hit on this a lot, but as followers of Jesus, we are immersed in a culture focused on individualism. All you have to do is look at any commercial and what is the commercial slated How is it engineered? It's engineered to appeal to you as an individual so you will purchase a product. In fact, everywhere we go, we demand our rights as individuals. We say, we throw around our money and say, as a consumer, I demand what I want because of my money. Everything in our lives is tailored as individuals. What's good is good for me. Peter is, is setting forth an example that is very much opposed to that. He's saying as Christians, it's not about you, but it's about the family to which you belong. I love it. 
I love it when we worship God by singing songs that focus on us as a body. One thing that Peter and Alina do often is they pick songs that have the word we in them. Now, maybe you've never noticed this and don't care, but I love singing songs that have the word we. We do this. We praise God. Build your kingdom in us. <laughs> Come here for us. Do your kingdom work through us. We worship you. Songs that focus on that rightly get us away from our individual individualist mindset, and they focus us as a family on the living God. It's a reminder that we are saved, not just you. You belong to a family. Some of you may have fully expected this next reference. But on Friday, five million Cubs fans gathered in Chicago. I don't know if you know, but the Cubs may have won the World Series this week. Um, none of you were alive the last time that happened. I don't think. We don't have any 108-year-olds. So, uh, yeah, none of you were alive. And uh, what a fantastic... Okay, sorry. Anyway, the parade. The parade. Five million people gathered in Chicago along the parade route in Grant Park. They packed in. Like, the pictures are just a sea of people. I read a stat that said it's the, it was the seventh largest human gathering in history. And it was the largest gathering of people in the United States. This is insane. And everyone is sporting cubby blue. It was, I, oh, I took so much, I would have loved to be there, although I might have been a bit claustrophobic, but it would have been awesome. For that moment this week, anyone in cubby blue had an immediate connection with somebody else in cubby blue. I discovered this. I wore my uh, cubby blue a shirt around a lot this week, and people would be like, go Cubs, go Cubs, you know? Or they'd, they'd talk to me about how, well, what a great, they'd start automatically talking about Joe Madden and his managerial decisions in, in the fifth, sixth, in the eighth inning, his use of Aroldis Chapman. I mean, immediately we had something to talk about, and we're family. For a week, all differences were set aside. Right. No fist fights, no people arguing. Everyone was a family. And what Peter is trying to tell these Christians here is that you belong to a family. So many of you in this room have in this room, in this outdoor room, have nothing in common with each other. I mean, you look, you just have nothing in common. But you have Jesus. He's our priest. We belong to a family. In Christ, you belong for a family, not just for a day, a day or a week or a month. You belong to a family for all eternity. Your family identity in Christ should be your primary identity in life. You belong to a people. Now, Peter keeps going here. I don't have a clock on the back wall. This could be dangerous. Sorry. All right. Um, yeah, yeah, you say that, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> My wife doesn't say that. Okay, uh, that's not true, by the way. She has never, ever said that. Um, verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What Peter is doing is he's grabbing onto this idea of belonging, and he's jumping all the way back to Hosea, the prophet of the Old Testament, who God told to do a very strange thing. So God was trying to get his attention of his wicked and rebellious Jewish people, his chosen people who had rebelled against him, they weren't listening to God at all. So he said to his prophet, hey, I want you to marry a prostitute and I want you to have children with her 
And when your children are born, you're going to name them some terrible names, not loved and not my people. God is trying to get the attention of his very people. And so as Hosea has a child and he names this child, not my people. That was the child's name. And what Peter is trying to say is that maybe now you were once like that, not a people of God, but now you are a people who has received mercy. And in in Hosea chapter 2, Hosea writes, in looking to the future, he says, I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. Hosea unknowingly looked forward to this moment, to where you and I are at. You see, Peter says, this is you. You were the ones he was talking about. You belong to God. If you have ever felt alone, if you have ever felt like you have no one, if you have ever felt like you don't belong, in this church, you belong. In the church of Jesus, you have a family. And you are not alone, no matter how much you feel alone. You belong. The last aspect of our acceptance, then, the third thing that I want to talk to you about today is that you have a transforming influence. Look at verse 11 and 12. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world. Peter automatically jumps back to the very first verses of the epistle of 1 Peter and says, You are a sojourner, a traveler, and this world is not your home. And he says, But you need to have a transforming influence in this culture. When I was 16, I went to Mexico. And we had, it was a missions trip, and we rode a school bus, by the way, all the way to Mexico. My mother was on that trip with me. I will never forget it. Uh, It was horrible. We rode a school bus all the way to Mexico. And in our training to go to Mexico, they must have said it 7,000 times. Don't drink the water. Don't drink the water. Make sure you use bottled water. Make sure you use the special water we've set aside. Do not drink the water because they have bacteria and they have things in their water that we are not used to as Americans and you will get sick. It will take you down. And this same thing was told to me when I went to India, when I went to the Arabian Peninsula, when I went to West Africa. Don't drink the water. And I always listened and I was always grateful for that. Uh, As we were talking about this message, Pastor Quinton shared a story with me about a missionary he knows. And the missionary had this simple idea. He said, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I need to live in the culture I'm at. So I'm going to slowly acclimate to the water. I'll just take a little bit at a time. And uh, you know how well that went? He was sicker than a dog. He was so sick by even just drinking a little water. That is the imagery that Peter says to us when he says, you got to live as an alien and a stranger in the world. Abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Trying to acclimate to the sin of this world does not work. Your sinful nature will feed on this evil and self-indulgence and your soul will starve. It will take you down. But then Peter switches imagery. If he says, as a stranger in the world, there are some things that you ought not participate in. Now he says, 
but you can have a lasting and transforming influence. Look at the last verse we're going to look at today. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that they accuse you of doing wrong. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Your good deeds matter. The way you live your life matters. When you choose to not just fall in to the behavior of the world around us, it matters. Doing what's right gives you an influence that you may never know about, but the world is watching. How we live matters. As you know, we were supposed to be meeting on the other side of this wall this morning. We were supposed to be in this building dedicating this. And when I got word on late Friday that we did not get our assembly permit for this, there were several workers who talked to me, and they said things like this. You know, Dave, no one will know. They, they don't work on Sunday. They're not going to know if you meet in there. Just meet in there anyway. They said things like, to me, like, well, you know, technically, you could all just be doing a construction tour, which is allowed, even though you're sitting in chairs in an assembly. You could just be doing a construction tour, and it would be fine. The temptation for us to just meet in there today was huge. But as I was thinking and wrestling this within my, in my head, God brought the very verses to mind that I'm preaching today. Live such good lives that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Our actions matter. How we live matters. And we can have a transforming influence that we may never know about. It was interesting to me. um, Once a year, or twice a year, depending on the year, we have made an effort through what we call Faith in Action Sunday to go into some neighborhoods in Waukee where people need help. And we've canceled our service and we've gone in there. Um, for a couple of reasons, we haven't been able to do that this fall. And, uh, and it just hasn't been able to come together. We haven't been able to get that on the calendar and do that. And what was interesting to me is that we got three separate phone calls in the last month. Hey, when are you guys coming out? Because I could really use your help. One lady shared the story about how she's been battling cancer all year. One lady shared a story about she just lost her husband, and all she needs is her bushes torn down. And they were looking for us. They said, we missed you. Where are you? It was fun to send out some emails and have some different people from our church reply and say, I'll I'll take care of that. I got that. I'll find some time and carve out. We still have one lady here. If you need, if you want to help with that, she needs some bushes taken out and some leaves raked before the end of the year because she's battling cancer right now and she can't do it. But I thought it was fascinating. It's almost as if they saw our good deeds and glorified God the Father. It's really an incredible testimony to the influence that you all have had that you may not even know about. An influence that is transforming in our culture. You know, in the coming months, we're going to have an opportunity. We're praying that God will bring us more people. 
more people to touch with the goodness and grace of God with the gospel. And we're praying that through this facility, we'll have more people come through our doors and you'll have opportunities. But friends, I would remind you how we use this facility matters. But at the end of the day, it's a tool. What brings glory to God is the people of God living out their transformed lives in the culture around us. I have always joked, because we have met in a school for so long, I have always joked that if we ever got a facility, I was going to name the facility not Waukee Community Church. And everyone, what are you, that's the weirdest thing I've ever heard, Dave. But I always wanted people to know that this building, the Avenue, is not our church. You are the church. And your good deeds matter. Our good deeds matter. It matters because we have a transforming influence in our culture. You have been accepted. You have not been rejected, as you might think. You have been accepted, and your life as an accepted person in Christ matters. We're temples. We're a people. And we have a transforming influence. And all of this happens, Peter says, because of our foundation, our cornerstone, our capstone, Jesus. Have you ever stood at the edge of a very tall cliff? Now, maybe you don't have uh, a fear of tall places, but, but I do. And uh, every time I do that, I, I can feel my stomach start to churn and, and wonder if I'm going to fall to my death. And uh, I, I remember standing on a, a very, very tall cliff in Utah, looking out over a canyon, which was, it was so far down below me that I lost total depth perception of how, what things were closer to me or farther away as I stood on the edge of this canyon. And as I stood there and the wind blew, the first thing I did was my buddies were around, who were with me, I made sure they were far away from me, lest they grab me and pretend to throw me over the edge. And once I knew they were far away, I found myself standing out there, getting very low on the rock on which I was standing. It was a greater comfort to me to be down low, near the foundation, so that I wouldn't fall. Friends in Christ, if we are going to have a transforming influence in this world, we must stay near our foundation. He is a good God. And Jesus is the one who has chosen us and accepted us. And as we stay near to him, may God use this facility. May God use this building as a tool for his people to influence the world and have a transforming influence for Christ. We're going to sing a song that celebrates our cornerstone. Would you pray with me as our worship team comes up? Actually, I want to ask right now that our ushers would come up and Aaron Savage is going to close our, our time in prayer and pray for our morning offering. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful day. Um, sunny, it's a little cold, but it is a wonderful day in November. And uh, we just thank you for this day to dedicate this new facility. And uh, we thank you for... Uh, how we ended up with this building, we, we look back and you are all over it, Lord. It's exactly what we were looking for. It's not extravagant. It's, it's not about a building that's going to attract people. Um, it's, it's about having a home for our church that we can use as a tool, as an avenue for people to come to Jesus. And so we thank you for that. I thank you especially for 
uh, many people who have been working so hard, Peter and Megan and Pastor Dave and Jeff Johannesson and many others who have spent a lot of hours. But Lord, we are reminded that we are the temple of the living God. And so as we dedicate this building, um, Lord, we, we, and as we give offerings this morning, this, this offering is not to pay bills, not for the mortgage or electric bills. It's an offering to you. And we cheerfully give to you today because you are a generous God. And so we pray that you take these tithes and offerings and that you'd use them for your glory and your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name.